So I was just still thinking of last week and just how awesome it was last week to have the, all the baptisms last week of people publicly proclaiming of their faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm just still thinking about that right now and just seeing all the awesome work that God is doing here at Maple Plain Community Church and just super excited to see where God is continuing to move here. But before we start today, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Just thank you so much for the baptisms this past week, Lord, and just the work that you're doing in people's lives, Lord. We pray that you continue to be working in us and working through us to be lights towards those who are around us, Lord. And as we uh, move into the sermon today, Lord, pray that you would speak through me as a vessel of your Holy Spirit for the words that are found in your scriptures. Lord, pray that you would give everyone here receptive hearts to hear what you have to say to us today, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know what else is awesome? It's officially Christmas season. So I know that culturally there's some debate on when you can start actually like celebrating Christmas and like putting your Christmas decorations up and putting your lights up around the house. But so officially, Christmas started in October for the Stanky family. I know there's some here who might be judging me and saying, no, that's way too early, but it's never too early to be thankful for Jesus' birth, so. <laughs> but, so we, we did hit a bit of a road bump this decorating season with our firstborn, Zephaniah, who came on November 1st. We hit a road bump on setting everything up in the household, but don't worry, this past weekend, the lights were put up on the outside of the house, so the deed has been done. But when I think of Christmas season, I'm reminded of memories when I grew up in Chicago, where every Christmas Eve since I was in middle school, uh, I was a part of the worship team with the church, and so we had two Christmas Eve services. We had one at 6 p.m., and then we had one at 11 p.m. So every year, we as a family would go out to eat at the same restaurant in between those two services. We'd go out to eat, then we'd go open up a couple presents at home, and then by the time we were done with that, it was already, it was already time to go back to church. But on Christmas morning, we celebrated with my parents who are here this morning, and, uh, and from Chicago, and we would, uh, open presents as a family, and then we'd go out with extended family uh, in the afternoon. But there was always just so much buildup to Christmas Day. We have these Advent calendars which count down to Christmas Day that have chocolate for each day that we count down to Christmas, when in reality, I think those calendars are just an excuse to eat more chocolate. But, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but there's just so much hype around the Christmas season, that we are bombarded with these advertisements for these things that we don't really need. We watch Hallmark movies that set completely unrealistic expectations for what Christmas is like, and we look at everyone else's Facebook and Instagram feeds showing how picture-perfect their Christmases were, when in real life, actually, somebody burned the Christmas ham, or there was a squirrel that got into the house and jumped out of your Christmas tree. Or, if you're like Allison and myself, you might wake up to find a bunch of mice in your house this past week. We're working on the problem, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, one thing that I've noticed is that once you get to Christmas Day, after all this build-up, after all this 
expectation and anticipation, it's built up to one single day, and then all of a sudden Christmas Day just ends. All that expectation, all that anticipation that we carry into Christmas Day, at the end of the day is just another day that comes and goes once a year. And let's remember the reason for all of the lights and the celebration, Christ coming into the world as our Savior. So we're starting our Advent sermon series this week on the voices of Christmas. Starting today, we will examine different perspectives of Christmas shared throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. From prophets to priests to angels, we will study the words of those who knew of the birth of Christ and that it would change everything. This week, we will be looking at the prophet Isaiah and some of the prophecies that he made concerning the future Messiah. We'll be jumping around the various portions in the book of Isaiah and other texts in the Bible, but our main portion will come out of Isaiah. And today, we will only be scratching the surface of the messianic prophecies that are found in the book of Isaiah. So context-wise, the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament and is written by a prophet named Isaiah. The book of Isaiah summarized is Isaiah sharing about the judgment that is going to come toward Israel as a result of their turning from God. Isaiah goes on to speak of a future day, of a new covenant, and a future Messiah to come. The book of Isaiah was written around 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus was born in a manger. So the overarching historical events that are going on during this book's writing was the ongoing political crisis that was produced by Assyria and Babylon, which were the two dominant major powers within that time. Judah and Israel were taught to believe that God was the sole creator of the universe and the sovereign Lord over everything. They were also taught that they were God's chosen people, and then from these truths, took out some wrong conclusions. That as long as, they faithfully as long as they faithfully performed the prescribed rituals that God set for them to do, the royal city of Jerusalem and their holy temple would be undefeatable and that they would continually rule through the line of David. Now, some events shocked them and challenged their understanding. Assyria, and then Babylon dominated the ancient Near East from around 900 BC to around 540 BC. Assyria destroyed and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, and Babylon destroyed and exiled Judah in 586 BC. So, how could God let his chosen people down like this, right? They're his chosen people. So, Context-wise is that the megapower, the Assyrians, were pressing southward towards what is modern-day Syria and Israel, toward their ultimate goal, which was Egypt. Israel was just a small nation that stood in Assyria's way, and Israel tried a number of tactics to stop Assyria from taking Israel over. In all the chaos caused by all the Assyrian activities that were going around them, Isaiah calls the people of Judah to trust in God rather than human power. 
Judah should not make an alliance with Assyria, which is what King Ahaz did, for Assyria would turn on them, and you will see this devastation that happened in Isaiah chapters seven through 12. Israel also shouldn't rely on Egypt, for Egypt will fail them in the end, which we will see in chapters 28 through 33. And then in 701, Assyria flooded into Judah, and Egypt failed Judah as an ally. When a high Assyrian officer calls on King Hezekiah to surrender later in the book of Isaiah, King Hezekiah instead trusts God for deliverance. And what happens when you trust God? God is faithful with that trust that we place in him. And he was faithful to Hezekiah by killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night in chapter 37. That's nuts. So, this is a lot of historical context here. I get it, it's a lot. If you don't like history, you're probably zoned out for the past five minutes. But this is all important to understand the context or who Isaiah is speaking to. He's speaking to these people that are terrified of these mega powers that are surrounding them. And their first thought is to be strategic and to form alliances with all these mega powers that are around them. And they fail to follow God's instructions of trusting God. And God says, here are the consequences for not following what I am saying. Amid the prophecy of the future destruction of Judah for not following God, we find this abrupt future promise of hope for this future figure that is coming. So at this time, I'd like to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven. Alrighty. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. And by the way of sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when, div when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be used for fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the last part of this section is, more, is the more known part of this section, as it said earlier in the service, and it's generally the verse that you hear around Christmas time. And it is speaking of a future time that will come. It speaks 
of a time of the Messiah, the deliverer that will come and rescue the people and rescue them from the place that they've placed themselves in and the judgment that they have found themselves in. So first initial, thought, first initial thoughts when I read this is dominion, kingship, and authority. Do you see these words that describe this future Messiah figure? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The combination of these four titles, or throne names, in one person represents the totality of his royal power. So let's dive into these words. Wonderful counselor, God did not need another counselor when he created the world. Kings and rulers have counselors and advisors for whenever they need to make big decisions. They generally will look at others to look for them for advice, like who should they attack, who should they defend, what alliances they should have, what economic policies they should have. The list goes on and on, but the future king will not need a counselor does not need advice because he is the wonderful counselor. And next we have mighty God, this Messiah, kingly figure that Isaiah, through the spirit, is describing is not just a good human like David, but he is literally calling this figure mighty God. This term is reserved for God himself. Now I've grown up in church and I've been a Christian almost my entire life. So this idea that this Messiah figure being God is not a new concept for me, but it might be for the original readers who read this. For unto us a child is born today is God himself. Everlasting Father, the ideal kingly figure who provides for his people and protects them. Everlasting is a term that means forever. So context-wise, remember that the people of Judah have had these kings that have just epically failed them, and they failed to provide for the people that they were to provide for. When this child comes, it will be an everlasting father who will always be their faithful provider, and he will never leave to protect, never, leave, never fail to protect them. Lastly, we have the Prince of Peace. It speaks of the wholeness with no issues left in the world. Peace in the world, the bringer of peace in our hearts, and then ultimately, the bringer of peace to God. And the peace that he brings, his rule will have no end. And then the next couple of verses describe this future child will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So then, how does this kingdom become inaugurated, or how does this all come to pass? How does this figure do this? Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna skip ahead a few chapters, or a few pages in the book of Isaiah. I'd like to invite some, everyone to open their Bibles up to Isaiah 53. It's just a few pages down, and this is where we find another picture of this messianic figure, and this, this passage is titled the Suffering Servant Passage, but it's a little different than the passage that we just read. So Isaiah chapter 53. 
who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with, the church, with numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So after reading this, it's quite a stark contrast to what we just read in Isaiah chapter nine. That he grew up like a tender shoot with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. That he was a man of suffering this sure doesn't sound like the mighty God figure that we are just talking about in chapter nine. That he was punished by God and that he was stricken by him. Next is where we start to see some of the reason for what is going on. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Now, Remember, he is our prince of peace. The prince of peace brought us peace to God through the suffering that he endured. What this is saying is that we as people do not have a right standing with God and that there must be something that happens that brings us in a right standing with God. So in verse six saying, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us 
has turned to our own way. And the story of our not right standing with God and the need of a savior begins in the book of Genesis. So, where in Genesis, what chapter, do we find the first sin? Three, chapter three. So, to get this straight, literally three chapters into the beginning of the Bible, and that is where we see people doing the wrong thing. It took three chapters. So God created the world, and it was good. Created humanity, and that's when we began sinning. It is where we see the serpent, the serpent tempting Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, which God forbid them to eat the fruit. The serpent tempted them, and she ate the fruit. And then Adam ate the fruit, and that's when their eyes were opened to the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing they had to do was not to eat of the fruit of the tree. They had one job, <laughs> not to eat the fruit of the tree. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's just me, but to be honest, it's sometimes when I see that sign that says, keep off the grass, the immediate thought that I have is, wow, that would be such great grass to walk on. <laughs> Who are they to tell me that I can't walk on this grass right here? So as I said before, my parents are here from Chicago, and they could vouch for me to say that when I was growing up, I was a stubborn child. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm grateful for that, but not, not grateful to you. <laughs> Thank you for verifying. But my parents would tell me to do something, and I would literally do the exact opposite of what they would say. For example, my mom told me, that I should not touch the coffee pot on the burner because the coffee pot was really hot and that I would burn myself if I touched the coffee pot. So, what do you think I did immediately after my mom left the room? <laughs> I'd burnt my hand. <laughs> but I can say that after that learning experience that I do have a healthy fear of hot objects. And as new parents, my wife Allison and I hope that our son doesn't inherit this tendency. <laughs> but because of Adam and Eve and their actions, sin entered into the created order. Sin has entered into the world, and from that, every piece of creation, every person, everything, is tainted with this sin. Everything in creation has been affected by it. This is where we see Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter eight saying that creation has been subjected to frustration. So we move on in the story of Genesis three. Adam blames God and Eve. Eve blames the serpent that deceived her because blaming others is always a great idea. No, it's not, don't do it. Then the Lord speaks to the serpent, Satan the devil, and then says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Watch here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is the first messianic prophecy that is found in the Old Testament. 
So, crush the head or strike the heel. What wins? Crush the head? Would you guys agree with me on that? Yeah. So that's kind of an obvious question. Rock always beats scissors, and paper always beats rock. The Chicago Bears will always beat the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Those them are fighting words right there. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in. I'm from Chicago, so. But the future offspring, but the future offspring of the woman, hint, Jesus, will crush the serpent's head, Satan, and the serpent will strike his heel. The mission and the objective of the eternal Son of God, the Messiah described in Isaiah, is found in 1 John 3, 8. It is to destroy the devil's work. And that is through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He broke the power of Satan and sin, and that is where he crushed the serpent's head. And Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering that this messianic figure would face. But then there is his hope. After he suffered, he, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with, strong, with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's focus on that. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's right, book of Isaiah, prophet, written in 700 BC, 700 years before the birth of Christ. So this is really a really interesting statement. This is talking about the death of this messianic figure but yet it's saying that he's alive. It's not explicitly saying that there's some kind of resurrection of some kind, but the figure dies, but is alive, right? We as believers know that this is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then to complement these messianic promises held in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53 about Jesus' royalty and coming as the suffering servant to take away our sins. Another advent that is coming brings with it a reminder of the second coming of Jesus Christ or the second advent of Christ. The word advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or an event, right? So you have the advent of the television, the advent of the smartphone, the advent of the wheel. It literally means the arrival of something or someone notable. So the birth of Jesus is the first advent of Jesus. Some call it Advent season, some call it Christmas season, but whatever people call it, the first coming of Jesus was a big event that happened. Baby Jesus was born in a manger. We see these promises in the last couple chapters of Isaiah, but more specifically, I want to read Isaiah chapter 65, Verses 20 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as in the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Right here. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. All right, stopping there. If I were to ask you right now, what book in the New Testament do you think we're reading? Last book of the Bible? Revelation. So more specifically, Revelation 21. Talking exactly about this, about the new heavens and the new earth. So a majority of the book of Revelation takes themes and symbols and ideas from the Old Testament. And this is just one example, but this is a form of hermeneutics. Dominic just talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is interpreting scripture with scripture. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And the Jewish readers at the time when they're reading this, who are familiar with the Old Testament, would realize that the writer of, of the book of Revelation, right, John, is referring to the promise that is found in Isaiah of a time that God will make the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and where there will be no more death. Where the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Right? We're not there yet. But when Jesus comes again, he won't come as a baby, but he will come robed in his splendid glory to come for the people that call on his name and to inaugurate, to bring forth new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah and John wrote about. So God was faithful to his promises in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter nine. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christ came to the earth humbly in a manger in Bethlehem, surprising nearly everyone. Right? They were expecting a bold 
heroic military ruler that would deliver them from their oppressors. But instead, came as a humble servant to deliver us from our sins through his death and to receive new life through the resurrection. We as a church long for and anticipate Christ's return, but none of us know the day or the time. As Matthew 24 says, Jesus will come like a a thief in the night, just as he was faithful in fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, he's going to be faithful in fulfilling the prophecies of his second coming. Right, the promise of Christ's return. So this Advent season, seek to know Jesus as the wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, as the everlasting Father, as the Prince of Peace. Seek to know him as the suffering servant, the one who died for your sins and defeating death through the resurrection. Seek to know him as the coming king that will come again to make what is wrong right and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and take away all the pain and the sorrow for those who believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the words that you have revealed to us through the prophet Isaiah, Lord, and just his promises of your coming, you coming into a manger, you being born, the promises of you dying on the cross for our sins, Lord, and your resurrection and the new life that is found in you. Lord, help us as a church, help us as people, to be awaiting your arrival, ready for you, Lord Jesus. We love you, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.